About two years ago, I made a pledge to cover every single Zelda game on this channel. The obscure games like Link's Crossbow Training, the weird spin-offs like Tingle's Rosy Rupee Land. If Nintendo were officially involved in the project in some way, I'd be there. And yet, on my journey to accomplish this task, more people have asked me about the Tingle games and the CDI games than they have a pair of games that proudly carried the Zelda title, Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages. Although rarely acknowledged in any official capacity, it is acknowledged as part of the main Zelda series and timeline. But you don't usually hear people talk about these games. Most forums I've read over the years generally accept that they are seldom discussed, yet highly revered. What little outspoken fans the Oracle games have are passionate, that is, if you ever happen to run into them. The games have been a mystery to me for most of my life. I mean, I finished them both, but prior to making this video, I had more of an attachment to the Oracle manga than I did the games. I just really liked how all of the characters were depicted, and it fleshed out the interconnected adventures of the Oracle games in a way the writers never did, or could for that matter. I'm also pretty sure Din awakened something in me when I was younger, but <laughs> you don't need to hear about that. I'd played the games, but I don't think I'd ever appreciated them for what they were. So, today I figured I'd try to do just that. To settle on a verdict for these games, I played them both back to back. With this video, I aim to figure out why these games aren't widely discussed, why they remain special to a small subset of the Zelda community, and what they represent in the greater context of the series. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is a video examining the impact that can be drawn from The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Seasons and The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Ages. In order to understand why these games exist and what they represent, we must first go back to the very beginning. Flagship was a subsidiary of Capcom from 1997 to 2007, founded by Yoshiki Okamoto. He proposed a series of six Zelda games to Miyamoto, although in the end the team agreed on creating a trilogy of games, and eventually a duology of games, that were interconnected through a password system. One of the key members of Flagship that fleshed this system out was Hidemaro Fujibayashi, and he would eventually go on to become director, planner, and writer for the Oracle games. Now, if that name sounds familiar, that's because he went on to direct Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild with Nintendo's core development teams, and these were his very first Zelda games. With that in mind, it's important to understand his philosophies on game design. For one, he believes that a game's rule set should be made totally apparent to the player. This philosophy, however, contradicts his fondness for the original Legend of Zelda. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It presents a unique opportunity to adapt the spirit of Zelda 1 into something easily digestible for all players, and carry over that sense of accomplishment when you discover a dungeon entrance or unearth a secret cave. It's also important to understand that Zelda games have always been a collaborative effort. Ocarina of Time had five directors over the course of its development. I can't attribute that game's legacy to just one person. With that said, this was a unique opportunity for Fujibayashi-san, an opportunity to unify his fondness for the original Zelda with the innovations and years of evolution employed on its formula and the resulting games would be proof enough of just how passionate the team was about Zelda. So, to begin, the Oracle games lift the majority of its groundwork from Link's Awakening. Its general structure, most of its sprites, and some of its items are identical. Both Oracle games also feature a trading quest that spans the duration of your adventure, although they instead culminate in an upgrade for your sword, which, by the way, is a far superior reward to the one offered in Link's Awakening. If you haven't seen my video on Link's Awakening, I would highly recommend you check it out by clicking the card on screen, or the link in the description. 
While Link's Awakening asked you to go that extra mile to upgrade your sword by having you collect seashells, this was done in the interest of its focused linearity and wealth of dungeons, with the low number of heart pieces also complementing this. In the Oracle games, the sword upgrade is a fitting and triumphant reward, and it proves to be the light at the end of the tunnel in one of the longest and trickiest trading quests in the game. That's right, it's not the only trading quest across both games. The trading quest structure isn't exclusive to just that quest this time around. And this is where the similarities between the Oracle games and Link's Awakening kind of fizzle out. The Oracle games flesh out almost every gameplay concept introduced in Link's Awakening, and introduce new concepts to establish identity. For starters, the trading quest might seem to teach the same skills that were conveyed in Link's Awakening, like clue memorization and resourcefulness, but in the Oracle games, they are more widely applicable and often required in order to progress. There are quests in both Oracle of Seasons and Ages that utilize the same principles in fun and creative ways. When you wash up on Crescent Island in Oracle of Ages, the Tokay will steal all of your items. What follows is a non-linear game of memorization and player ingenuity. You'll need to recognize what can be dealt with based on your current arsenal. As you work your way through the island, play some minigames, or even lose your shovel in exchange for a temporary lease on your power bracelet. Now later on in the same game, you'll need to do some trading in order to work your way up to a rock brisket for a Goron guarding the path to your next dungeon. This requires you to travel back and forth through time, complete minigames, honor secrets, and take note of how time has had an effect on Rolling Ridge. Like both games, the skills you learn in these portions are applicable across the board, and that last example specifically ties into how you can use this knowledge to explore the overworlds of both games. For comparison, Link's Awakening intentionally segmented its world and blocked off portions with trees, cliffs, and oceans to forge a linear path for the player that would gradually open up as you gather new items. It also employed a great deal of memorization. It was very focused on being a linear game with adventurousness driven by the player's knowledge of their abilities. Also, the map is big, so this structure made a lot of sense. The Oracle games employ far more memorization inherently due to the primary mechanics they revolve around, the Rod of Seasons and the Harp of Ages. The former allows you to change the seasons at will from atop a stump, and the latter allows you to travel between the past and the present in a manner not dissimilar to Link to the Past. Over the course of each game, you'll gradually expand your abilities with each instrument, incrementally gaining control over the seasons, and going from only being able to travel through time in designated spots, to being able to travel back and forth through time at will. These are both immensely powerful assets for the player and for the designers. Although both games start in a similar manner to Link's Awakening, you explore a town, go grab your sword, and eventually uncover your first dungeon, they are far more open-ended and require you to explore a bit using the abilities you've gained from a previous dungeon as your guide, as well as your ever-expanding control over the seasons and time travel. For example, in Oracle of Seasons, an inconspicuous plot of trees could become a path for you as the leaves disappear in the winter. A high cliff could be accessible with a shortcut as the flowers bloom in the spring. Holes could be filled with leaves in autumn so that you can cross over them. In Oracle of Ages, the past and present essentially make up two different overworlds. While I mentioned this was reminiscent of Link to the Past and its light world, dark world dynamic, so much of this game is intertwined with the flow of time and switching between periods at will. I mentioned the Goron trading quest, but there's also Symmetry City, a place that you can actively save from destruction in the past by finding time portals, pushing seeds against walls so that vines can grow in the future, and finally ending the volcanic eruption so that you can enter the Skull Dungeon in a now prosperous Symmetry City. Or how about entering the Zora Village and healing the king? Although the actual quest itself boils down to a repetitive fetch quest, the puzzle solving that goes into actually entering the village is pretty cool. 
Over the course of time, the oceans have shifted noticeably to the east. You have to keep this in mind as you constantly create time portals with the Harp of Ages to shift the landforms in your desired direction, dive underwater to access new areas, and maybe even discover caves. These organic puzzles feel emphatic when you consider just how open-ended both Holodrum and Labrina can be. At the end of every dungeon, the Maku Tree will give you a vague hint toward your next objective. Figuring out how to get there is a different story. Like I alluded to previously, Link's Awakening's overworld thrives on linearity, with paths subconsciously guiding the player toward their next objective. And if that weren't enough, an owl will occasionally drop hints on you. The Oracle games are nothing like this, as your path only becomes clear when you approach a part of the world with a new item or ability. It comes down to player intuition and memorization, the Oracle game's strongest suit. On top of that, you'll have plenty of ways to travel. Gale Seeds warp you to a select few locations across the map, and your animal companions can attack different obstacles with ease, like Ricky with high ledges, Dimitri with waterfalls, and Moosh with massive pits. And if that weren't enough, there is a lot to memorize across the board. Caves, pits, immovable stones, and puzzles that seemingly have no solution should always be kept on the back of your mind. Because you never know what you might have stumbled upon. It could just net you a heart piece or a helpful item, but it could also be crucial in conquering an upcoming objective, and you just don't know it yet. This is where the significance of that lengthy trading quest comes to light. These clues that have no relevance to you in the moment just might be important later. Now, with all of this information at hand, it can be difficult to remember everything the game throws at you. But when your brain fails you, taking notes can save you. And you might wonder, why the heck would you want to take notes when you're playing a video game? While the games do actually have you write down code so that you can have them interact sometimes, I'm talking about writing down stuff for the sake of memorization. Let's go back to the original Legend of Zelda for a second. Fujibayashi-san has a soft spot for this game, as do many other people who grew up in the 80s. This game was inherently a social experience, in which secrets spread by word of mouth, hints in Nintendo Power, and the instruction manual. Aside from rescue the princess and save Hyrule, there are no stated objectives in-game. So, it can feel quite overwhelming today. But as you become more experienced with it, and put enough time into learning about it, solving it, and communicating your discoveries with friends, the more your likelihood of killing Ganon increases. Is all of this capable through just a person's brain in their hands gripping a controller? Not without extreme perseverance, no. The reason I bring this up is because the Oracle games streamline that feeling of satisfaction and discovery from Zelda 1 into its core design. While other Zelda games often tell you where to go and leave the side stuff to your own creativity, the Oracle games were the first Zeldas since the 80s to confidently leave the player to their own devices in almost every moment. They are designed like previous Zelda games in an effort to guide them down the right path, but any help and clues they might want have to be sought after, instead of them being given out. Yeah, you can get these clues, but not without putting your knowledge to the test. As a more specific example of this, in Oracle of Seasons, one of the areas remains off-limits until you gather four shaped gems. These gems can be found long before you've been prompted to search for them, but some of them are unlikely to be found in that time. Like this one right outside of the Dancing Dragon dungeon. How the... What? How are you supposed to figure that out? Well, the game will throw you a bone. There is a way to make this gem hunting easier on yourself, but it will take some resourcefulness. One of the items that can appear in the Subrosian Market is a silver member's card for five ore chunks. Now when you first enter the market in Horon Village, a primal instinct will undoubtedly take you over as you spot a passageway behind a counter. 
Unfortunately, you'll be stopped upon attempting to get back there, unless you have that member's card. The card shows up in a place that is required for the main quest, and occasionally has some useful items, so it's not terribly unlikely that you'd find the member's card there by chance. With this, you can finally sneak back there and check out some fine items available for purchase. Most notably, a mysterious treasure map that leaves sparkles on your map. Those sparkles are your clues, and one of them is positioned right on the screen where you need to dive under the water. This string of events came about due to how streamlined discovery is in the Oracle games. It feels really, really rewarding to solve puzzles in this game, because they are based solely around the player's knowledge of the world and their items. This, inherently, gives the Oracle games identity. It's not something you can easily point out, like Majora's Mask's three-day cycle or Wind Waker's Great Sea, but it's certainly identifiable, and it coexists with the Rod of Seasons and Harp of Ages. Before I even got the treasure map, I recalled a lightable torch by the ocean. I created a bridge, checked out a mysterious fossil with an aptly named Mystery Seed, fought off some enemies and netted myself a gem, all thanks to how the game is designed, and how powerfully memory can serve you in these games. Aside from Fujibayashi-san's love of Zelda 1 shining through here, there was also a continuous push around this era for Zelda to be more systematically driven. The Zelda game to come out before this was proof enough of that philosophy being present within Nintendo. As such, the Oracle games feature the Seed Satchel, Gasha Seeds, and Appraisable Rings. Let's unpack these one at a time. The Seed Satchel is perhaps one of the most useful additions to this game in puzzle solving and in combat. At first you'll get the Ember Seed for lighting torches and bushes, but in due time you'll unearth the Mystery Seeds, the Gale Seeds for warping around Holodrum and Labrina, but by far my favorite seed of the bunch is the Pegasus Seed. I guess someone looked at the bunny hood and felt we needed an equivalent in 2D Zelda because the Pegasus boots weren't enough. I used the Pegasus seeds in so many instances, from running around through the overworld, to dodging boss attacks. Its uses never seem to run out. And even if you don't tend to use a certain type of seed, you can still use it as ammo. In Oracle of Seasons you can shoot seeds from a slingshot that eventually upgrades to a triple shot, and in Ages you can angle your shots with a seed shooter. You can ricochet seeds off of walls up to three times before they dissipate, and this item in particular made for some of the coolest puzzles and trickiest challenges across both games. Gasha seeds are plantable goodies that you can uncover in the overworld and in dungeons. The harder a patch of soil is to reach, the greater your reward will be when a Gasha nut grows. This leads to perhaps one of the most obnoxious heart pieces in the game, but rupees, rings, and potions aren't anything to scoff at. This gives exploring the overworld even more purpose than it already had, and I haven't even discussed the rings yet. When used correctly, rings can save your ass. You'll have to look in every corner and under every rock for these things, but as you expand your ring box to hold more of them at a time, and appraise some of the truly beneficial ones, you can really turn the tides. Some of the rings are finite, such as the coveted power and armor rings, the colored rings for attack and defense, the heart ring which lets you recover hearts automatically over time, while some are the result of rare drops. However, even with some of these rings being left up to chance, there are other rings that can help you with that. The Gasha Ring allows you to heavily increase your chances of getting great items from Gasha Nuts, and the Maple Ring increases your chances of running into Maple, thus helping you get free potions or yet another annoying heart piece. Now I'm not going to waste your time over-summarizing the impact this system has on the game, because there are a lot of rings to collect across both games, and they each have their own strengths and weaknesses. And you can only equip one at a time, so a lot of strategy can come into play. Like Majora's Mask, becoming acclimated with this system will take a while, perhaps even multiple playthroughs. Some of them are even exclusive to a linked playthrough, if you recall those passwords I mentioned before. 
However, unlike Majora's Mask, you could largely neglect the ring collecting or Gasha seed planning in this game, and you'd probably be fine. Now, depending on your tastes in Zelda, this could either be a good thing or a bad thing. But I do believe both of these systems feed into the overall feedback loop present in the Oracle games. The overworld is brilliantly designed, but without things to find within it, it loses its impact. Finding rupees in it allows you to appraise more rings and purchase more items, which allows you to harvest more gasha nuts and accomplish more in dungeons and in the overworld, which in turn net you more upgrades and gives you access to some even cooler rings. This cycle is what makes the Oracle games, at their core, fun. This is where its mechanical identity lies. In manipulating the seasons and ages to discover your path, in utilizing its systems to gain an edge in every aspect, and in doing everything in its power to make the player's journey engaging through trading and quests that are applicable to everything you do. This experimentation extends to the dungeons. Although I have to be real, 16 dungeons across both games will creatively bankrupt even the most experienced of dungeon designers. I've always subscribed to the idea that less is more. Majora's Mask may have had only four dungeons, but they were some of the most perplexing, inventive, and ingenious dungeons in the Zelda series. So to say that great ideas were spread thin across all 16 dungeons would be putting it lightly. The first couple of dungeons in both games are absolute cakewalks with almost nothing unique to report. They exist solely to introduce concepts that would be fleshed out significantly as you progress. Like a central switchboard that alternates between clockwise and counterclockwise turning, making you think about how you can approach the central room from a different angle to get to where you want to go. There's also minecarts that you have to keep track of, color-based puzzles, puzzles that are similar to that one Club Penguin minigame I used to play the hell out of, underground caves that link different parts of the dungeon together. All of this to say that there are recurring themes in dungeons, but it's rare to find overall dungeon theming. First of all, what does it mean for a Zelda dungeon to have theming? Well, the bare minimum of this, to me, comes from a dungeon having an identity beyond the item you find in it. For example, the Water Temple isn't about the Iron Boots or the Long Shot, it's about managing the water levels and figuring out where to go in a puzzling maze that expands from its central hub. This doesn't mean that a dungeon is bad or lazy if it focuses on just the item you obtain, it's important to teach the player of its uses. But you can always do more than that. Here's the simplest way I can justify my thinking. One of the reasons Majora's Mask's dungeon theming was so tight was due to its utilization of the three transformation masks. Woodfall Temple wasn't just about Deku Link, it was about everything that he was capable of accomplishing, while accompanying your current loadout with Link himself. Poisonous water to skip across, Deku flowers, projectiles to launch, bubbles to pop, you get the idea. This continues throughout the Snowhead and Great Bay Temples with Goron Link and Zora Link respectively. The Snowhead Temple is vertical in nature, with puzzles that focus on the central pillar shrinking in size. And it's up to Goron Link to figure out how to do that. With ramps, punches, all that stuff. The Great Bay Temple, much like the Water Temple, has a central hub that you can redirect the flow of water through. Across all of these dungeons, all of your abilities are factored in, with the puzzles and settings both feeling just as enriched in detail. And then, you have the Stone Tower Temple, which uses all three transformation masks in tandem. And it has the unique feature of flipping itself on its head so that you have to solve the dungeon while it's inverted, opening Pandora's box to a plethora of challenges exclusive to that dungeon. The real kicker here is that the items you get in these dungeons are different kinds of arrows each time. They didn't even need to introduce new items to become legendary in my mind. Even Link's Awakening managed to create identity in its dungeons, despite the limitations of the Game Boy. Eagle's Tower focuses on knocking down four pillars in the center so that you can ascend to the upper floors. 
Key Cavern focuses on collecting, well, keys, and figuring out how you can use them. The Face Shrine is split into two sides, requires lateral thinking, and it is set against an emotional backdrop that I wouldn't dare spoil here. Seriously, go play Link's Awakening if you haven't already. Now, the Oracle Dungeons do occasionally have thematic throughlines. The Ancient Tomb has you looking for four slates non-linearly and converging on a central room that will eventually reveal the boss. The Sword and Shield Maze is a layered and confusing labyrinth that tests all of your knowledge of the game, as you eventually work your way down to the core of the dungeon and dissipate the lava sitting at the bottom. But even that floor can be a maze. These are a couple of examples as more exist, but I'm not about to analyze 16 dungeons in this video, that's a lot. And when you consider just how many dungeons the team had to design, on top of fleshing out the overworld, you'll probably begin to understand why it might have been impossible for them to keep the dungeons distinct consistently. That's why they took the safe approach, focus most of the dungeons on the items you get in a traditional, Zelda-esque approach, and gradually increase the difficulty of recurring puzzles to create a sense of progression. Does this mean the dungeons are worse off? Not necessarily. The switch hook is awesome, and it completes the Skull Dungeon. Its linearity gave me the false impression that the dungeon would be underwhelming, but due to the way its puzzles and challenges were scattered throughout, it wasn't. The switch hook also ended up playing a huge part in Oracle of Ages, so as an introduction, this dungeon served its purpose well. Unicorn's Cave introduces the player to the Magnetic Gloves, which set up some of the coolest puzzles Oracle of Seasons has to offer. Unfortunately, the inevitable problems that arise from designing 16 dungeons do make themselves apparent. Messy layouts that can lead to confusion and frustration like in the Crown Dungeon, and a lack of focus or challenge, tend to plague certain areas of these games' dungeon design. Like I've alluded to previously, the repetition of seeing the same kinds of puzzles and using the same items does set in since you'll no doubt play these games back to back. This problem is lessened in Oracle of Seasons due to its action-centric focus in dungeons, but in Ages, they start to run out of steam. Part of it also stems from the reuse of items from Link to the Past and Link's Awakening, like the Power Bracelet and the Cane of Samaria. The fatigue sets in faster depending on how experienced you are with Zelda, or what your preferences are dungeon-wise. Still, it's not every day that a team can design 16 dungeons and still manage to string together two impressive and focused games, so you have to commend them for their efforts. There's only really one thing I dislike about these games, and that would be the audio. Aside from reusing songs and sound effects from Link's Awakening, the Oracle games occasionally feature original music. Some of the music in these games can be pretty cool, but others? is some of the most rancid music I've ever heard in a Zelda game. Those melodies spiraling out of control, that grating bass. And you know what? Not even the sound effects are safe. You wanna hear the most annoying sound in the world? I can't even blame this stuff on the Game Boy, because listen to how well Link's Awakening fared. Oh well. As terrible as some of the music in the Oracle games was, I still have yet to discuss my favorite track of them all. It accompanies what I believe to be the best portion of both games, an area that I believe guaranteed Fujibayashi-san and his team a permanent position working on Zelda. Tarm Ruins.
This area serves as a prelude to the sixth dungeon, the Ancient Ruins. It's relatively short in the grand scheme of things, but it is easily the most tightly designed and most impactful area across both games to me. You'll have to manipulate the seasons and overlapping puzzles that are ingeniously stitched together. Let me walk you through an example. You'll start off on this screen, which is obviously solved by changing the season to winter. As you navigate to the left, you'll notice an immovable statue and a snowbank. So you head back, see a wall for vines to grow, and climb them in the summer. There's a hole that can only be investigated during autumn, so you keep that on the back burner. To your left is an obstructed pond, but you can jump down to the statue and push it, creating a staircase for when you change the season back to winter and climb the snowbank. Now you can get behind those statues, push them over the ice, let a warmer season melt the ice, and proceed onward. As you reach the Lost Woods, you'll no doubt lose track of yourself. If you head back to that hole in the fall, a lowly Deku scrub will have the information you seek. This is also where you can find the Noble Sword resting with information received from a completed trading quest, or if you're playing a linked game, it'll be the Master Sword. Now, all of this is but a sampling of the area's brilliance. Layer after layer after layer of consideration when changing the seasons. Tarm Ruins continues to have you switching the seasons around to navigate a labyrinth that is far more than it appears. Darknuts threaten to impede your progress. Subtle clues egg you on into switching seasons. It's amazing to see how the seasons constantly affect the world around you in such a condensed portion of the game. This is where the colors of Oracle of Seasons pop, the atmosphere surrounds you and the music envelops you in an aura of mystery. This is the area in which I believe Hidemaro Fujibayashi became a Zelda director for life. To this day, I would love to see Tarm Ruins depicted faithfully in 3D somehow. It clearly has a lot of history. I mean, the Master Sword is sleeping there, the Blade of Evil's Bane. It's such a beautiful and contemplative area, and I would love to see it adapted into a future Zelda game somehow. But if you do depict it in another game, you lose one crucial thing. The mechanical identity of the Oracle games. An element on full display in Tarm Ruins. At the very least, we wouldn't have Tarm Ruins if the Oracle games weren't so much damn fun. By the way, I want to thank Rebecca Tripp for allowing me to use that incredible orchestral remix of Tarm Ruins' music, and my brother Dalen for illustrating this amazing depiction of the area itself. Thank you guys so much. In 2007, Cory Bunnell posted on the forum Translators Cafe, asking for advice on how to eventually work at Nintendo. Ten years later, he appeared in the credits of Breath of the Wild for programming the game's wildlife. Although the road ahead was no doubt tough, he managed to work his way up to a position at Nintendo EPD. His tale is reminiscent of Fujibayashi-san's. He was working at an amusement park prior to finding a job at Capcom, as Capcom found his layout planning and ride designing applicable to that which was required of a game designer. With a fondness for Zelda in his mind and heart, he eventually fleshed out the Oracle games and became their director. His accomplishments working on these games led to him working alongside Eiji Aonuma nearly 20 years later on Breath of the Wild, the best-selling Zelda game of all time. This all happened because these two individuals challenged themselves to take a leap of faith. Kuri no doubt understood the consequences of learning Japanese at a professional level, applying for a work visa, and gunning for a position at Nintendo, but he followed through with it, and he got to work on a dream project. Fujibayashi-san eventually directed a game that took heavy influence from a game he greatly respected. Nintendo gave the reins to a team outside of their own company for once, 
in a great leap of faith. With that said, there were moments like with the Tokay, the Subrosian dancers, bonding with my animal companion, the pirate gang, the depressed kid that hates good comedy, the various things that can happen when you link your games together, like the couple that remembered I named their son Butts, Rosa handing me my shovel on Crescent Island because we went on her strange idea of a date, and especially those little moments you share with Din, Nehru, Zelda, and the villains of these games. The incredible design of the overworld and how you can interact with it and change it, the fantastic new ideas and mechanics that further flesh out the game's feedback loop, and of course, the fight with Twin Rova and a mindless resurrected Ganon. The Oracle games are very odd games in the Zelda series, but these were all things that made them feel less like Zelda games made by another company, and more like just Zelda games. And by all accounts, they were the result of a massive leap of faith. They did a lot for the series, and for people that worked on Zelda. And that, that inspires me, to say the least.